We are in a uh, we're in part three of the series, Who Needs God Anymore? And if you missed any of the series up until now, you really need to go to newlifewichita.com where you can watch this series or you can download the podcast. You can also listen through iTunes or your favorite podcast app. But we're doing this series because of those living in this city alone, more than half, more than half of those living in Wichita, Kansas would check the none box, N-O-N-E, no religious affiliation, which is some of you who are, are with us in this room, for those, some of you that are joining us online, and I know that because so many people have messaged me or come to me or talked to me to tell me how helpful this has been because it is so accurately represented and described and connected with your journey as it, when it comes to God and faith and church and religion and all of it. And for the rest of you, there are people in your life right now today, uh, friends, family, co-workers, students, clients, teachers, professors, that they would check the nun box, or there are people in your life that right now they are thinking about stepping away from their faith, but they're too afraid to tell you, and they are in your life. So this discussion is for us all, and what we've been saying through this entire series is that on the one hand, there are things about when it comes to God, when it comes to Christianity in particular, and theism that are unsettling, and they leave us with a lot of unanswered questions. So millions have walked away or turned away from their childhood faith. But as we've said, you can't turn from one thing without turning to something else. And the only other alternative is that we are living in a creator-less world, in a universe where there is no God, there's no divine design, and everything is just driven purely by the laws of physics and chemistry, and where there is no, this whole sense of self and value and justice and free will, it's just all illusion. That in fact, there is nothing more than birth, struggle, and then death. And then three generations, four at the most, contrary to Eminem, no matter the percentage of luck, skill, or concentrated power of will, nobody's going to remember your name. Three generations, four at the most. And, uh, but the problem is, is you have so many people that are just falling into some struggle and despair as you think about it. And you think about this, well, it might be true, but this isn't very encouraging It's a bit unsettling. So for a growing number of people in our population, especially millennials and post-millennials, Gen Z, there's a sense of despair because atheism isn't all that appealing or compelling either. In fact, for most, intelligent design seems to make full, absolute logical sense. But for many, they would say, I grew up in a religious, faith-based environment. I started asking questions and I got faith-based answers to my adult fact-based questions. So they began to step away from the church, step away from Christianity. And as I said last week, there are two common themes in all of these stories. The one we talked about last week is the somebody told me so God. And we looked at the list of gods that we grew up believing in that don't exist. And I'm not going to recap all of those, but it said that if you walk away from one of these gods, good, because that God doesn't exist. If you're losing or lost faith in, the, in that God, great. That God didn't exist to begin with. And again, I'm not going to recap that, so if you missed last week, just please go back and listen to that. And I would encourage you, again, there are people in your life that they are struggling with these questions. Please share these messages with people uh, so that they get this opportunity, because it could be, could be that they're losing faith in a God, again, that didn't exist to begin with. Because today, I'm moving on to the Bible told me so, Jesus. Because a Bible told me so Jesus is one of the threads that I hear in deconversion stories all the time from those who are losing or who have lost faith 
in the Christian faith. And now today is going to be a bit complicated, so I hope you did get lots of coffee. We've got more in the back if you need it. Uh, Ritalin and Concerta, if you take it, you should have taken it, because if you get distracted for even a second today, you're, you're going to get lost, you're going to hear me say something that I didn't say, and you're going to misunderstand, and I'm going to get an angry text message, and you're going to decide I'm a heretic, and you can't go to church here anymore. For others of you, this may be the message, this may be the message that gives you permission and hopefully the inspiration take, to take a step back toward Christianity, not the version that you've been thinking of walking away from or have walked away from, but to a much richer, robust Jesus version of Christianity, the way Christianity was supposed to be and understood. So don't let yourself get distracted, and please listen carefully. I'm going to work hard to be as clear as possible because what I'm going to talk about in the next few minutes is one of the most overlooked parts of Christian faith and has been for decades, if not more. In fact, some of you are going to want to go, why didn't anyone tell me this before? And one of the reasons I've been so excited to talk about this today is because I myself, for most of my Christian life, I was setting myself up for unnecessary conflict and distraction from the main thing, and it just created so much frustration. And as I talk, I would encourage you to take notes, or maybe it's better to take pictures of the slides, and if there's anything I say today that you don't believe, Google is your friend, okay? You can fact check me, and if I say, if you're unsettled about something I say, you'll be able to rewatch or listen to this online later. And uh, you can message me with your questions. You can write a question on a Connect card and leave that, and I will touch base with you. And so uh, to start us off, some of you, maybe many of you, many of you were taught a little song when you were kids, and it was, Jesus loves me, this I know, for the what? Bible tells all the Sunday school people. The Bible tells me so. I would argue that this is part of where our trouble began. And don't mentally check out and don't log off yet, okay? Here's why. Here's why this is so. Part of the problem for some of you is that you grew up, but your faith didn't. And your childhood God could not withstand the rigors and questions of adulthood. Because your understanding of the Bible and your approach to Jesus did not grow up with us. And we discover what appears to be conflict of information and facts. So Jesus loves me, this I know, for the Bible tells me so, is problematic for adults, and here's why. Because the implication is the Bible is the reason we believe. In other words, I can believe that Jesus loves me because it's in the Bible. Now, when I suggest this is a problem, and that's unsettling for some of you, because like for me, that was, for many of you, that was your been, been your perspective on Christianity, your whole perspective on Christianity. The Bible says it, that settles it. But the problem that that sets us up for is if the Bible is the foundation of our faith, as the Bible goes, so goes our faith. It means Christianity cannot exist or survive without the Bible. If somehow every single part of the Bible isn't absolutely true, accurate, and good, then our faith isn't absolutely true, accurate, and good. If the Bible is the foundation of our faith, it is all or nothing. This is why growing up you may have heard some, something taught in school, and then you went home and you asked your parents about it, and their response was, yeah, well, we don't believe that. Okay, but it appears to be true. Well, we don't believe that. This is why we send our kids or our grandkids off to college or the military 
and they come back with no faith because we send them off with the Bible says it, that settles it faith, and then the problem is a professor with a PhD behind their name gets up and says, well, there are problems with the Bible. And then they begin to talk about things that maybe aren't true or historically verifiable. And if the Bible is the foundation of our faith, then Christianity becomes a fragile house of cards religion that comes tumbling down when somebody in archaeology or an ancient history class just tugs at one of the cards and says, you know, you may have been taught this, that the walls of Jericho came tumbling down, but we've excavated the city of Jericho, and there's no evidence of that. And there's no evidence that the Hebrew people departed en masse, making some sort of trek from Egypt to Canaan to what they call the Holy Land, and there's no evidence of a worldwide flood, and then there's all these contradictions in the Old Testament, and the facts and the figures don't add up between 1 Kings and 2 Samuel, and the Bible seems to teach that the earth is only about 6,000 years old, and everyone knows that the earth is 4.5 billion years old, and the universe is 14.5 billion years old, and suddenly there's this extraordinary tension, because this is the thought, and I'm just telling you When you listen, as I have, to atheist debates on college university campuses, their YouTube talks, TED talks, post online, uh, what they do is they attack and they pick apart Christianity by almost always going after the Bible. Because if the entire Bible isn't true, then the Bible isn't true. And if the Bible isn't true, Christianity comes tumbling down. So consequently, Christians have felt compelled to defend the Bible because the only way to defend the Christian faith is to defend the Bible. And what you have discovered is it's next to impossible to defend the entire Bible, especially the Old Testament and the God of the Old Testament. And if your Christianity hangs by the thread of proving everything in the Bible is true and literal and good, an earlier generation might have been able to hang on to it, but your kids and your grandkids and the next generation will not and are not, which is why we're talking about this. And this is something I I missed for so many years, and if you hear nothing else I say this morning, then just please hear this. The reason this is a problem is it puts the wrong thing at the center of the debate because it puts the Bible at the center of the debate. And the foundation of our faith is not a book. The foundation of our faith is an event. But if the Bible is the center of the debate, then everything rises and falls on whether all the Bible is literal, true, accurate, and good. Because for those who have walked away from the Christian faith, part of their justification is there are problems with the Bible. Parts aren't true. And if all the Bible isn't true, then how can I trust any of it? Some of you grew up being told that the Bible is, be, is the inspired, infallible Word of God and is the foundation of our faith, and then you discovered that parts of it seem to be fallible, to contradict. And so consequently, I don't want anything to do with it. And if someone leaves Christianity because of anything connected to that kind of thinking, they leave unnecessarily because the Christian faith does not exist because because of the Bible, any more than you exist because of your birth certificate. Your birth certificate documents something that happened. And if you lose it or there's an error on it, you do not cease to exist. It simply documents your birth. And the New Testament documents something that happened. 
Christianity doesn't exist because of the Bible. It's the other way around. The Bible exists because of the Christian faith. And this is so big. It requires a little history lesson, and this is where, instead of taking notes, you might just want to take a picture. Uh, When it comes to dates, we use what's called, most of you know, the Gregorian calendar. But in the first century, when Jesus was alive, they used the Julian calendar. So the whole ADBC thing, not to be confused with my ringtone, ACDC, that's a whole different thing. Uh, The whole ADBC, dating of history on the birth of Christ, it started about 500 years after Jesus and was ultimately incorporated into the Gregorian calendar in the 16th century. And Jesus wasn't actually born in zero, okay, like it seems like it would, because they worked to base this new calendar on something that that happened 1,500 years prior. They got it off by a couple of years. So Jesus was actually born in 2 or 3 BC. Pretty much everybody agrees he was crucified in 30 AD, and then three days later, rose from the dead. A few weeks later, hundreds of Jewish people flood the streets of Jerusalem, risk their lives, and begin to say, you crucified him, God raised him, we know that because we've seen him. Say you're sorry. And people began to repent, and thousands and thousands of people in the city of Jerusalem embraced a risen Savior. Not 50 years later, just a few weeks later after the murder and resurrection and the church was born. Now, in 66 AD, Vespasian came from the north through Galilee to city after city, village after village. He's rolling in. He herds up all the troublemakers. He herds them down to the city of Jerusalem. He goes to Rome. He eventually becomes emperor. He leaves his son Titus to clean up the mess. And this is a crucial date, even though it's nowhere to be found in the New Testament. And that's in 70 AD. So Titus lays siege to the city of Jerusalem. And after many, a long, long siege, August 6th, 70 AD, the walls are breached. The Roman army floods into Jerusalem. And they were so enraged by that point, they burned down the temple. They burned everything they could. Thousands were crucified. Hundreds of thousands were shipped off into the slave markets. Jews were banned from the city. It was one of the most sorrowful, painful, unimaginable moments in the history of Judaism. Now, the reason why this is a big deal is because nothing about this event is referenced anywhere in the New Testament, not once. And the most logical, probable explanation is it hadn't happened yet. And the reason that's important is this. The followers of Jesus began to write things down that Jesus said and did, and that's where we got the documents. Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, the book of Acts, it gives us all the details of what happened after the resurrection, and when the church began, and then Paul began to write his letters, his epistles, to Gentile churches, which means that all of these documents were written between 49 and 69 AD. And that's a big deal because it means that these documents were all written during the time that the eyewitnesses were still alive. Now, when you're in college, and you can pick up books today and say this, and this is when I was at university, this was one of the things that were taught, was taught, that all these documents, they were written, written like way after 90 AD. And this is important. There is zero evidence of this. In fact, it's the opposite. Now, why does this matter? Because there are those that want to push the writings of the manuscripts further out of what we call the New Testament because this is the only way for the legends of the miracles and the resurrection to have developed after all the eyewitnesses are long dead. 
But all the historical evidence points to the fact that these documents were written early. In fact, everyone agrees that the Apostle Paul's letters were written in the early 50s, Luke and Acts in the 40s or early 50s. There's just no evidence to the contrary. And the only reason to push these dates later is to just simply try to explain, well, how did all these miracle stories crop up? Because you can't have miracle stories being raised up while all the eyewitnesses are still alive. Now, here's something else that's huge, but you're not going to hear this in your freshman religion or English class. The New Testament authors, Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, Paul, they all pin themselves down to specific historical, not allegorical context. The way they wrote the Gospels, it would have been so easy to discredit if they were making this up. It was written in historical, not story design. Here's just one example. This is from the book of Luke, chapter 3. Look to the length that Luke goes to pin himself down to a specific historical context. He writes, In the 15th year of the reign of Tiberius Caesar, when Pontius Pilate was governor of Judea, Herod, tetrarch of Galilee, his brother Philip, tetrarch of Arturia, and Trachonitis, and Lysanias, tetrarch of Abilene, during the high priesthood of Annas and Caiaphas. When did this happen? Like, very specific. Now, if you're, you and I are reading the book of Luke, it's like, okay, that's great, all these names, and like, want to move on to something important. But this mattered, because basically, this was Luke's way of saying, fact check me. Every New Testament writer is willing to go so far as to pin down the exact historical context with places and names and dates. This isn't fable. This isn't a long time ago in a galaxy far, far away. And this is incredibly risky if you're lying and just trying to make up a religion or just trying to make up a movement. Now, a sidebar, there, there's so much I could say on this, but I, I, can't, I don't have the time. But if this is something you're interested in, and I hope you are, I want to refer you to an excellent book called Stealing from God. Uh, This book references and addresses in much greater detail many of the things that we're talking about in this series. In chapter 7 of this book, he details specifically the reliability of the New Testament documents. Because if the New Testament documents are reliable, it's a game changer in terms of authenticity and credibility of Jesus Christ and Christianity. Now here's why all this is such a big deal. In the first century, there is an explosion of documents and documentation of the life and the teachings of Jesus and copies and copies of these letters. There is nothing in history that parallels this. Nothing. Until the creation of the printing press, there's nothing that even comes close to this explosion of literature and the meticulous copies of copies of literature. Uh, These documents, Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, all these documents were so precious and so valuable to the first century followers that they were copied meticulously and distributed throughout Jerusalem and Rome and uh, Alexandria, Egypt, to Constantinople and around the Mediterranean Rim. And during this whole part of history, these documents are copied and copied and distributed. And you'll have people go, as has been said to me, you know, you can't really believe the, the Bible because it's got lots of errors. It was just copied so many times. Listen to me. That is so ignorant, okay? This is just someone that doesn't want to do, uh, take the time to look at the facts. This is someone who, that, uh, they're just being lazy. Because when you look at the facts, the facts are extraordinary, extraordinarily overwhelming. Nothing compares with the Roman emperors. I mean, the Roman emperors had to hire people to write and document their wars and their battles. There's no example of anyone 
of any renown having this mass amount of literature written about them and to this magnitude. Now let me ask you, what do you make copies of? And the answer is things you want to preserve. You make copies of things that are important to you. And these documents were considered so important that the people who copied them, they were username and password careful. Because again, this was a big deal. You just have to inform yourself and do a little homework on the rules that the scribes had to follow. In fact, one of the ones I was always so fascinated with is if they were they, where the scribe would cop, see a letter and write that letter down. See a letter, write that letter down. And they could be at the very end of the letter, and if they made an error, they burned the entire copy manuscript and started over again. That's how meticulous they were. Any major discrepancy, the amazing thing is, uh, sometimes, again, you'll, you'll hear, oh, there's so many copies and so many variations. Well, I've got some great news. If you buy an English study Bible or if you use the YouVersion Bible app, all the major variant readings that, you know, this person said this or this person said this or it looks like a copyist edit, any major discrepancy is in the footnotes. And you know why? Because there's nothing to hide. There's no like, oh, we hope nobody finds out about this. That's why sometimes you'll read your English Bible and you'll see a footnote or a notation. It'll say, well, an earlier manuscript says, and all those variants are in there. And this is so important. None of the variations, none of them make any theological difference. Not one. It's not like there's a group of manuscripts that go, Jesus was crucified, and another says he died by falling off a camel. I mean, there's just none of that. And as a side note, I can't help but chuckle a little bit, because again, I've, I've had people say to me, and like really smart people, and they'll go, oh, the Bible has so many contradictions. And I'll go, okay, I'll bite. Like, which top two bother you the most? Well, I can't think of any. Come on, give me one. There's so many. And so, it's like, you're just parroting what somebody else said or you told you or you read in a book, but you've never actually looked for yourself. And there are thousands and thousands of copies. And you know what? There are some slight variations. There are. But the great news is they can all be compared to one another. And what you discover is all the variants are minor. And, they, and any that might make any little bit of difference, it's right there in the footnotes of your English Bible or in the YouVersion Bible app. Now, don't miss this. The men and women who copied these documents did not make copies of the Gospels because they thought they were inspired. They made copies of the Gospels because they believed they were true. Because they were, or they knew, eyewitnesses. God had done something extraordinary in history, and when somebody got the chance to borrow one of these, it's like, are you kidding me? You're going to let me borrow this for a while and, and make copies of this? And this was so expensive. They didn't have paper like we have paper. Uh, the, they didn't have the ability to, re, to reproduce like we do. It was papyrus or it was leather scrolls. It was wax tablets that were so expensive, which is just more evidence as to how valuable these documents were to the early Christians. Now back to our timetable. Something extraordinary happens in 312. Uh, Constantine at the battle of the bridge, the Milvian Bridge, he defeats Maxentius' army, and in 312, Constantine becomes the undisputed emperor of Rome. And here is one of the unexplained mysteries of history. Between the time of Jesus' death and Constantine becoming emperor, the church grew and grew and grew and gained extraordinary and unexplainable influence in the world. 
It's unexplainable because during most of this time, the church was persecuted. If you were caught with fragments or scraps of these documents, you could be imprisoned or put to death. Emperors from time to time would just call open season on Christians. And yet in spite of that, between 30 and 312, Christianity had spread so far that before it was even legal, Constantine's mother had become a Christian. He ultimately embraced Christianity. He lifts a restriction on it. But do you know why Constantine made Christianity legal? It was not because of his personal faith. Constantine legalized Christianity to unify the empire. And this is so significant. During the 282 years between 30 and 312, there had grown so many Christians in the Roman Empire that when he got power and needed something to unify the empire, this was that something. Here's my point. Christianity made its greatest strides during the 282 years before the Bible even existed. There was no the Bible, like we think of Bible. There was no Old Testament or New Testament put together uh, where somebody could have said, well, the Bible, Christianity was not born on the back of the Bible. In fact, the Jewish scriptures, what we call the Old Testament, and listen, this was so highly offensive to Jewish people. Like, hey, thank you, we're going to take these, we're going to put these together. They were not combined with the New Testament until 350 A.D., into what we would call the Codex Sinaiticus or the Codex Vaticanus. Hardly anyone could read it, but even if they could, it was not for distribution. Nobody was going to own one, which is just fascinating that for three centuries these documents have been floating around, but nobody was going to own one. Uh, the first occasion, again, uh, we know where the Old Testament and the Jewish Scriptures were put together in the New Testament were 350 years after the birth of Christ. And it was not even referred to the Bible until 30 years later in 388. Now, here's my point, because this is huge. Hundreds of years before we had what we call the Bible, Christianity had already replaced the pantheon of Roman and barbarian and most Egyptian gods, and it had become the state religion of Rome. No one had ever held in their hand a Bible. The first, second, or third century Christians who faced tremendous hardship believed Jesus loved them before the Bible told them so. Peter, James, Paul, the apostles, they did not choose to follow Jesus because of an infallible Old Testament or non-contradicting New Testament. In other words, no one came to Peter and said, hey, this whole follow Jesus thing, do you realize there's no evidence of a worldwide flood? Hey, Peter, do you know there's no archaeological evidence for the Exodus? Hey, Paul, before you get all crazy about this Jesus thing, you realize the earth is more than 6,000 years old, and this whole genealogy in Genesis, it's unreliable. I think Peter would have looked at you and said, you know, I, I, I'm not sure what to say all about that, but I followed a man for three years who spoke like no one else, and as he predicted, he was arrested and crucified, and we thought, game over. And we all went into hiding. And then a bunch of ladies came and they're babbling about the tomb is empty, the tomb is empty. And I ran and I looked in and I saw an empty tomb. And you know what I concluded? Not that he had risen. I concluded somebody stolen the body. But then a few days later, I had, a breakfast, I had breakfast with my risen friend on the beach. So I'm not sure about a 6,000-year-old earth, and I'm not sure about archaeological evidence, and I'm not sure about all that. The reason I'm following Jesus is because I saw him die, and then I saw him alive. 
And when someone predicts and pulls off their own death and resurrection, you just go with whatever they say. So I went into the streets of Jerusalem to say God has done something important among us. And for the first 300 years, the debate centered on an event, not a book. For the first 300 years, the question was not, is the Bible true? Because there was no the Bible. It was, did Jesus rise from the dead? And Matthew said he did, and Mark said he did, and Luke said he did, and John said he did, and Peter said he did, and James, the brother of Jesus, what would it take for your brother to convince you he was from God and your Lord and Savior? James, the brother of Jesus, did not believe until after one thing. He saw his brother dead and then saw him alive again. And the Apostle Paul, who hated and hunted and killed Christians, he too experienced something that in one day convinced him and led him to immediately conclude Jesus did in fact rise from the dead. There is no explanation. There is no explanation for the success of the early church if it had not been so. Christianity does not hang by the thread of the Bible tells me so. And if your entire life your thing has been uh, there's information and archaeology or science. It looks like it contradicts the Bible. And the hill that I need to die on is defending the entire Bible. It just breaks my heart that we've inherited such a fragile version of faith. And I know how you feel because I once felt that way too. That we had to jump into a conversation with somebody about faith. And before we could even get to Jesus, we got to work through all this other stuff. But the original pre-Bible version was defensible. It was endurable, it was fearless, it was compassionate, it was compelling. So now that you're an adult, you've grown up, and I just challenge you, if you haven't already, to embrace a grown-up God and a grown-up version of the precious Scriptures that, make no mistake, I take very, very seriously and that I cherish and I love. Because the Bible is, isn't a book. The Bible is a precious, priceless compilation of 66 different documents and letters written by, over 40, by 40 different authors over a period of 1,500 years, three different languages, three different continents that ultimately tell one story. And I don't love the Scriptures and take them seriously because they're in the Bible. I love the Scriptures and take them seriously because Jesus rose from the dead and because Jesus took the Scriptures seriously. So let me just close this by saying, Jesus loves you, this I know, because John, who watched him die and days later had breakfast with him on a beach, tells you so. Jesus loves you, this I know, for Luke, who thoroughly investigated all of the details and events, interviewed eyewitnesses, and wrote down the details meticulously, made sure it was so. Jesus loves you, this I know, because a Pharisee who hated and hunted and arrested and killed Christians, who was going to single-handedly stop the Jesus movement, became in one day a Jesus follower, and then risked the rest of his life, and it ultimately cost him his life, to make sure that you'd know. Jesus loves you, this we know, because his original followers were martyred for believing it was so. And Jesus loves you, this I know, and you can know, for the early church defied an empire and the temple, because they were convinced it was so. See, the reason you should follow Jesus isn't because the Bible says, but of who Jesus claimed to be, punctuated by his claims of predicting his own death and resurrection for dying on the cross and rising from the dead 
and the eyewitnesses of those events documented those events. But this is important. They did not document what they believed. They documented what they saw. So if you struggled with Christianity because of something in or about the Bible, I want to invite you to reconsider, and here's why I don't want you to miss next week. If you're going to try and discover, okay, if I'm going to take Jesus seriously, what is the real God like, then the best place to start is Jesus. So next week, we're going to ask the question, what did Jesus say about God? Let me pray for us. Father, I... I thank you for the documents that we have, for the history that we have, and Father, for the inspiration that I believe that you gave in so much it was of what was written, though the authors didn't necessarily recognize it at the time, and I thank you that we have these preserved for us and have such easy access. And God, I pray for everyone that, is, that I know is listening to my voice, and they, they're, they're continuing to wrestle and they're trying to discover I pray, God, that you just truly would reveal yourself in an unmistakable way and that you would, for all of us, give us eyes to see and ears to hear. I thank you, Father, for this community that you've built where we can talk about these kinds of things just openly and honestly and not feel threatened by it as we ultimately ask all the questions we can because we know that you're not threatened by questions. I just thank you for all of that in the name of Jesus. Amen.